Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob. And here, James Jordan is going to be in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, discussing the ordering of the blessings given to Jacob's sons. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 49 in the life of Jacob. Well now, I have given you what I think may be a structure of the last part of this chapter, or the middle part, actually, after the blessings are given in verses 29, there's more stuff afterwards. Basically, this tribe list and the things said about the tribes, three tribes are cursed, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and we looked at them, and the rest of them are blessed. And one of the questions that all the commentators wrestle with, and I am by no means sure that I've got the right answer, but at least I will give you mine, is what accounts for the order in which these tribes are discussed, because they're not discussed in the birth order. This is not the same order of tribes that you would find when you go back to chapters 29 and 30, where the children are born. Now, it starts off the right way. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah are the first four sons of Leah. But then after that, we have the sons of the handmaids, and then two more sons of Leah, and then Joseph and Benjamin. Well, it ends the right way, Joseph and Benjamin at the end. But what Jacob does here is he does the first four sons of Leah, and then the last two sons of Leah, Issachar and Zebulun, and then he turns to the four sons of the handmaids, and then ends with Joseph and Benjamin. But, so you might say, well, that makes sense. Leah, all six of her sons, and then the handmaid's sons, and then the sons of Rachel. But Leah, Leah's last two sons are Issachar and Zebulun, But if you will look at verses 13 and 14, you'll see that Israel takes them up as Zebulun and Issachar, reversing the order. And then, as regards the sons of the handmaids, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali here, they are not grouped in the order with their mothers. They're mixed up. So what accounts for this? Why is he doing this? There has to be a reason. There is some reason why Jacob goes through the tribes in the order in which he does. Well, I think that the reason has to do with the theology of it and that we need to take the blessings as a whole and not just as specific blessings for individual people. Let's just go all the way up to the top and remember that the Trinity, God, is three and one at the same time. He's one God and also three persons. Israel, as an image of God, they are the image of God, the new humanity, They are one nation and also twelve tribes. In a sense, everything that's said about each one of these tribes applies to all of them. It would be interesting, and maybe we should do this before we completely leave it, is to go back and say, okay, not only how does this promise apply to Zebulun, but how does it apply to all of them? Because what we say is everything that's true about the Son as God is true of the Father and true of the Holy Spirit in some sense. In other words, the Three persons indwell one another, and although each has his own particular properties. And here, 
we would have to say the same thing. Now, if we were to consider this as one series of blessings, then there's kind of an order to it. It starts off with Judah, who is a king who is like a lion, and he tears his prey in verse 9, and it ends with Benjamin, who is also going to be a king, you see. Saul is going to come from Benjamin. David from Judah, Saul from Benjamin. Ends with Benjamin, a wolf that tears to pieces. So he's like a wolf. And none of these are negative animals. All animals are good. So he's one of these nice wolves that they have around nowadays. And he tears things to pieces. He's like a king. Now, if Joseph is said to be, verse 22, a wild ass, a young ass, donkey... Well, if you look at the end of the Judah promise, it's talking about donkeys. He ties up his donkey to a vine and the colt of a she-ass to a crimson tendril. That's in verse 11. So there's a match there. And if we continue, and this will become clearer as we go, so I don't see any need to keep looking at all the details right now. Let's just survey it. Zebulun is compared to an animal that lies down and faces the Sea of Galilee with its rear to Sidon. And matching that is Naphtali, which is a doe that is running free, an animal that is active. Issachar, moving in again, has a good and pleasant land that he works. Asher has a good and pleasant land that gives forth food and dainties. And then at the center, you have Dan and Gad, and they're very similar. Verse 17 May Dan be a snake on the wayside, a horned viper on the path who bites the horse's heels. And verse 19 about Gad, Gad, robbers will rob at him, but he will strike at their heel. So the idea of striking at someone's heel is there with Dan and Gad. And right in the center is this statement by Israel, I wait and hope for your deliverance, Yahweh. For your deliverance, I wait, Yahweh. That makes sense to me as an overall construct. We have... A king at the beginning, a king at the end, and right at the center we have Samson. That's who Dan is going to be about, and this business about waiting for your deliverance is Samson. Again, a messianic figure. So we have Messiah at the beginning, Messiah at the end, and Messiah in the middle, and that unifies this prophecy. If I'm right, that's what accounts for the overall structure. So that's for you to have. You got it. I can't know for sure if that's right, but having read all the wrestlings of some of the various commentators, this is what came to me as a result of thinking about it. So let's begin, and we'll see how far we can get. Your notes go up to, but not including Joseph today, so I don't think we'll get through all of this. we start with Judah and the Judah prophecy. Judah and Joseph prophecies are the long ones, and the Judah prophecy is complicated because it alludes to things that are not clear in English. So, let's read it. I shall read it and read from Fox. Verse 8, Yehuda, you, your brothers, will praise you. Your hand on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. A lion's whelp, Yehuda, on torn prey, my son, you have grown up. That's really the better way to translate it. He squats. He lies down, not so much crouches as lies down, like the lion, like the king of beasts, who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Yehuda, nor the staff of command from between his legs, until Shiloh comes. I'm going to maintain that that's the best translation. But that is, this phrase is more debated than almost any phrase in the Old Testament, so we'll have to share that with you a little bit. 
the obedience of the nations is his. Little Gentiles here. He ties up his foal or donkey to a vine, his young colt, or literally colt of a she-ass, to a crimson tendril. He washes his raiment in wine, his mantle in the blood of grapes, his eyes darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Notice in verses 11 and 12, we have five references to wine. The vine, the crimson tendril, the wine, the grapes, and the wine. This, of course, is kingly stuff. Wine is for kings as bread is for priests. Now, we have seven actual statements here. Two are addressed to Judah, and then there are five basic statements addressed to all of them together. So addressed to Judah, he says, Your brothers will praise you, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons will bow down to you. And then he says, A lion's whelp on torn prey you have grown up. You grew up eating prey. And then he talks to the brothers, he talks to all of them, and he says that Judah is going to be like a lion who rests. See, he grows up, see a young lion, and then he comes to his rest. He's a prince and then he's a king. And is the lion resting on his throne, you don't want to stir him up. That would be bad news. And then he talks about the future rule, the scepter that is going to be there with him until the Gentiles come. And then he talks about the donkey and the colt who are tied to the vine. He talks about washing garments in wine. And he talks about eyes and teeth. And there are really three pairs there. So... There are five basic statements, and there's a lot in here, some of which you don't see because you're reading it in English, and there's really no way to give the puns in English, so all we can do is explain them. You may remember that the name Judah, or Yehuda is a play on the Hebrew word for praise, Yaduka, praise, and as it is here. Judah, your brothers will Judah you, we could say. Judah, your brothers will Judah you. That is, praise you. So that's one pun that's here. And another one is the word hand. Your hand, Yadeka, is on the neck of your enemies. And the reason that stands out to us, and I'm sure you immediately notice this, is that you don't put your hand on the neck of your enemies. You put your foot on the neck of your enemies. Now, maybe in Japan when you're doing karate, you put your hand on the neck of your enemies, but... In the ancient Near East, your enemy stand there and you put your foot on his neck, and that's what it says everywhere else in the Bible, and everywhere else around the ancient Near East. Your foot is on the neck of your enemies. So what's this hand on the neck of your enemy stuff? Well, it's so that we can get in this word yudeka, so that we can have a pun here. It's the hand as well as the foot. And it conveys the same idea, but it implies that there's two sides to Judah. There's the blessing for his friends and his brothers, and there's vengeance for his enemies. And that's carried through here in the second half of verse 11. He washes his garment in wine, his mantle in blood of grapes. There's the positive side and the negative side. Wine and also blood vengeance in the enemies. You will bathe your feet in the blood of your enemies, says Psalm 58. And that's implied, not stated, this is a prophecy in poetry. So everything is implied rather than stated. 
But what's implied, you see, both blessing and judgment, because he's the king, and the king dispenses blessing and judgment. Hand on the neck of the enemies, praised by the brothers. And they're both plays on his name. Yehuda, your brothers will yaduka you. And your enemies are going to be yadeked. Your hand will be on them. Well, one of the things that we should immediately notice is that when it says your father's sons will bow down to you, that's what was said about Joseph back at the beginning. Joseph had these dreams, you see. All the brothers would bow down to him. Now, it's changed. That's an important thing to notice here. Judah has changed. Judah has gone from being bad son to good son by offering to die for Benjamin, to give his life. And so he's shown what it means to be a real king, and so he's given the kingship. And the thing that was said about Joseph to start with, that everybody would bow down to him, is now transferred to Judah, which is going to be true. There aren't going to be any kings from the tribe of Joseph, at least in the south, over the entire nation. Ephraim kings will be over the north, but not over the United Nation of Israel. They will be Saul from Benjamin and then David and Solomon from Judah. So this is transferred, and we said Joseph, Benjamin, and Judah are the three kings in this story. Joseph has functioned as a king, Benjamin is the one prophesied to be a king, and Judah, after he repents, is now given all these king prophecies, and that's what's happening here, and Joseph's attributes are given to him. Joseph is the lord of bread and wine. Joseph has the silver cup. And all this wine imagery, which is kingly, is now going to be given to Judah as well. When we come over here to Joseph at the end, there's nothing about wine. And there's nothing about brothers bowing down to Joseph in verses 22 to 26. That kind of stuff that originally was Joseph's is now transferred over to Judah. Because Judah is now the king. And of course, this prophesies David. Especially the lion stuff that's about to come up. The brothers recognizing Judah. That's really going to happen when we get to David, when men from all the tribes will come and join themselves to David, when David is out in the boonies, David is out in the woods, and men from all over, in fact, even Gentiles like Uriah the Hittite, come and join themselves to David. And all the tribes voluntarily come to David. You remember how that works out. Initially, the northern tribes wanted to remain with Saul's family, and they made Ishbosheth the king. And David reigned for seven and a half years before the northern tribes voluntarily came to David and said, we want to be part of a united kingdom under you. So all the brothers coming to praise Judah is fulfilled here with David. And David is the one who defeats the enemies and provides peace all around. So that Solomon, whose name means peace, and the Shiloh that's prophesied here is Solomon. That's why I'm going to maintain till Shiloh comes is important. Solomon is able to build the temple because David has pacified all the enemies. And then when we come to this lion stuff, again, when we know the future, we can see how these general statements here wind up being fulfilled. A lion's whelp, Jehuda, on torn prey you have grown up. He has translated it here, from the prey you have gone up. In other words, you've killed something, you've killed a sheep, and you've eaten it, and now you've gone up and walked away. But I think you can translate it just as easily, you have grown up 
on this stuff, and I think that works better. And, you know, you read the commentaries, one says this, one says that, they argue. I have to choose. My choice is you have grown up on this. Because, again, it works with David. David kills a bear and he kills a lion. And he kills Goliath. He grows up to become king by fighting and defeating the enemies of God. And when Saul is persecuting David, David goes out in the boonies and he fights Israel's battles while he's out there away from Saul. So he grows up on the prey. That's what a prince has to do. A prince has to be a warrior. And he has to learn leadership through this martial activity. Now, this is something the Bible teaches. I don't know if we should make it an absolute rule. Should we have a rule that the President of the United States must have seen combat? So someone like Bill Clinton could never be elected. Somebody like Ronald Reagan could never be elected. You would have to actually see combat as a requirement for political leadership. Well, there's that fairly well-known novel by Robert Heinlein, Starship Troopers, which was made into a rather pathetic movie a few years ago, but that was his point. There are two kinds of people, citizens, and what's the other one's called? To be a citizen, you have to have served in the military. Then you get to vote. If you didn't serve in the military, you don't vote. You have all the benefits of being a member of the society, but you don't get to vote unless you wore a uniform and served in the military and fought for your country or fought for the planet Earth, as it's a science fiction novel. Well, that's not entirely out of line with what the Bible teaches. Everybody's in the militia. All the men are in the militia in Israel, and you would not have a man as a king in Israel who hadn't worn a uniform. And, of course, traditional societies are this way. At some point, the prince and the other young men of the royal family go out and have some military experience, although they usually don't wind up in foxholes. Still, they wear uniforms and they receive military training because it's regarded as important. Well, this is all part of the worldview that's implied here. You grow up by being a warrior, and then you can sit down. And we have a shift of the third person. Israel addresses the other sons who must submit to Judah in the future. The lion lies down on his throne. He's no longer in his warrior phase of life. He now squats and lies down there in his den. There's a shelf in the den, and he's up high on that shelf. You know how if you have cats, they want to be up high on things. They don't usually want to lie on the floor. In fact, our cats, if we get a box comes in the mail, we set it on the floor, cat will get on it. They want to get on top of anything new you have. It's their way of taking it over. If you let them, they'll take everything over. Well, lions are like that. You get the number one lion, the alpha male, if there's a shelf somewhere, he's going to be up on it, and all the other lions will be down below him. So he makes a good picture of a king, because the king sits on his throne up high, and everybody else is lower down. And he's not just crouching here, he's lying down. You can translate that either way, and lying down makes more sense in context. He squats down, he lies down like a lion, like the king of beasts, and who dares rouse him up? You don't want to make him mad, especially if he's having a nice, peaceful sleep, and you wake him up, and he'll be even more angry. So this is a picture of what the king is like. He becomes a king by being a young lion and fighting the enemies, and then, like a lion, he sits down. And Judah's going to be like that. And, of course, the lion is the sign of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus is the lion of Judah. 
Haile Selassie was the Lion of Judah, wasn't he? And that's all your crossword puzzle question. Lion of Judah. Answer, Haile Selassie. Because the Ethiopian kings claim to be descendants of the tribe of Judah, descendants of King David. Of course, the king of England claims to be a descendant of King David, and the fact is every last one of us is a descendant of King David. Now, you go back far enough, we're all related to each other. You only have to go back about a thousand years and everybody's related. So we're all descendants of Judah, so we're all lions of Judah. And that's the symbol, the lion tribe. Then he shifts to talking about the human king. And here, what is hidden from view is references to Judah's three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Old Judah messed it up with his sons. Ur was bad and God killed him. Onan was bad and God killed him. And then Judah didn't give Shelah to Tamar, the Gentile woman. Instead, he gave her his staff. Remember, in reality, it was just a little rolling pin that goes inside his cylinder seal, but it's called a staff. He gave her his staff instead of giving Shelah, and so he winds up having children by the Gentile woman. Well, new Judah is not going to be like that. And the names of his sons show up here again, but prophesying that new Judah will be different. It will be transformation of the kinds of things that happened earlier. So let's look at this, and let me just show you what's here first, and then we'll go back and look at it in detail. Starting in verse 10, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the staff of command from between his legs, which means children. What comes from between your legs is children. Until Shiloh comes. That's the name Shelah. Or it's the same basic word. Shalom, Shiloh, Shelah, Shalomo, which is Solomon. There's a reference to the Shelah here. And he is not going to give away his staff until Shelah is old enough to marry Tamar. And then it says... The obedience of Gentiles is his. Just as Tamar, the Gentile woman, wanted to come into the covenant, so the Gentiles will come in when Shelah is old enough, if Judah is faithful. That's the general thought. We'll unpack it. He ties up his donkey, Ur, to a vine, his colt of a she-ass, Onan, to a crimson tendril. So his two sons, Ur and Onan, are alluded to here. We'll come back to this. It's all in the notes, and we'll look at it in a bit more detail. Now it's as if he has new sons who are hard-working donkeys, but he can trust them so much that he can tie them to a grapevine, and they won't eat it all up. Or maybe he's so rich that he can afford to tie them to a grapevine and let them eat it up. Either way, the idea is that new Judah will have better sons, and then the earlier bad sons that old bad Judah had. Old bad Judah was carnal. Old bad Judah sold Joseph into slavery. Old bad Judah brought his sons up wrong. Old bad Judah's boys were bad. God killed old bad Judah's boys. But now there's new good Judah who is redeemed and transformed, and he'll have sons again, so to speak, from between his legs, and they'll be greatly blessed. He's so rich, he'll have so many grapevines that he can tie his donkeys up to them, knowing that the donkeys are going to eat all the grapes. Plus, hey, grapes, they're free, they're so common. So let's look at it in more detail. That's the overall thrust of it, as I see it. And then I guess I need to say this too. It's actually 
some of the more liberal commentators who have made this suggestion that Sheila Ur and Onan are behind this text. And I don't think that what they do with it is all that helpful. What I just said is what I take of it. The conservatives are much more reluctant to say what I just said, that the three sons are here, but I think they are. I think it's just a case where some of the more liberal scholarly commentators have been a little bit more creative in understanding how this is written than some of the more conventional ones are. I hope that didn't confuse you, but it's just a matter of you read everybody and see what makes sense. Even a stop clock is right twice a day, and even jackasses can speak the truth from time to time. We shift from lion king to human king in verse 10. The scepter will not depart. The scepter is a symbol of rule, nor the staff from between his feet. Now, one suggestion you get from some commentators is the king sits on his throne, and he has the staff here between his legs, and it's a symbol of his authority. Well, that might be right, but frankly, something coming from between your feet or between your knees is a standard picture of birth. And we are talking about offspring here. We're talking about a line of kings. That's clear. It's not going to depart on into the future. So something coming from between his legs here is talking about children. We saw the same thing just previously in chapter 47, where Joseph took his sons from between his knees and gave them to his father Jacob. In chapter 48, verse 12, what's happening there? Well, these are two grown men, 25, 28 years old. They weren't actually standing between Joseph's knees, but that's a figure of speech, an idiom, that means he transferred them. They had been born from his loins, and now they are transferred over by adoption to Jacob. Jacob is now adopting them, and they are from his knees by adoption. Similarly, you'll remember that When Hagar is supposed to have a child, the child was supposed to be born on Sarah's knees. So the child came out from between Hagar's legs, but it was supposed to be transferred and put on Sarah's knees as if it had come out from her. And similarly in Ruth chapter 4, when Ruth gives birth to Obed, it says they put the baby on Naomi's knees. So although the baby came from between Ruth's knees, it is adopted by the ritual of saying this baby came from Naomi's knees. So this is all pretty obvious stuff. A staff is between his legs and children come forth. It's the sons that are alluded to. And again, the choice of language here points us back. Judah did not hold on to his staff. And we can think of a staff as a large stick, and it is, and it's a staff of command because you can hit somebody with it, and so it's a symbol of rule. But the staff of command can also be that seal, because what is the sign of your authority is your seal. We think of a signet ring, stamp it in the wax, but as I've shown you many times, they had cylinder seals that you'd roll out like a rolling pin, And the staff is the pin that goes inside of it when you roll it out. And that's the sign of your authority. And if you're a king, you have the king's seal. Pharaoh gave to Joseph the king's signet. That was hung around his neck with that pin and the cylinder here. And he could take it off. And if Joseph said something and wanted to make it official, they put some wax down and roll it out. In Revelation, the book of seven seals, has got seven of these things on them. The first one has a white horse 
sealed on it, and then there's a red horse sealed on it. See, those are the pictures that are on the seals of the book, as we discussed it several years ago. That's the sign of your authority. Well, Judah gave his way. He wanted to have this harlot, who turned out to be Tamar, so he gave it away. So there's an allusion here. And sons resulted from it, but now that wasn't the way it was supposed to happen. He was supposed to keep hold of his seal of authority and give Shelah, or Shiloh, to Tamar so that the Gentiles would come in. And so next time around, new Judah is going to do this the right way. So now we come to one of the hardest sentences in the Bible. And the literature on this is enormous. And the reason is nobody knows what until Shiloh comes means. I think I do, so I've already told you what I think it means what it alludes to, but it is tough, and I can't be absolutely sure I'm right. What's the problem? Well, you're reading along here. The staff is not going to depart from between his legs until Shiloh comes. What does that mean? Shiloh is a place. Places don't go anywhere. The mountain's not going to come to Mohammed. Shiloh's not going to come to Judah. Well, maybe it means until he comes to Shiloh. Well, to do that, you have to change it around just a little bit. And so that would mean if Shiloh is a place name, and that's difficult. We assume Shiloh is the place Shiloh, but the fact is the place Shiloh is spelled a little bit differently. The vowel is actually written out in one case and not in the other. Now, to remind you of this fact, in Hebrew, you don't write the vowels. This is written this way, S-H-L-H. Sometimes you do write the vowels, and it can be written S-H-L-O-H. And this O is a consonant. You know what? I can't remember now. I don't think it's, I don't think the L is written out. I think the I is written out. And this is a vowel letter, not just a vowel. Pure vowels in Hebrew consist of little dots around the letters. There are two or three vowel letters that are actually consonants that can be used for vowels. Well, this isn't spelled the right way for the place Shiloh, although the guess is that's what it refers to. Well, maybe it doesn't. I don't think it does. I think it's a pointer back to Shelah and forward to Solomon. But this is the problem that we wrestle with, the commentators wrestle with, so I'm letting you see just a little bit of it here. If you translate it until he comes to Shiloh, Well, the fact is, Shiloh was controlled throughout all of their history. Throughout the book of Judges, David controlled the town of Shiloh as part of Israel. It was part of Israel from then on. So if he's going to rule until he comes to Shiloh, I mean, he didn't rule very long. He came to Shiloh long before he even started to rule as king. It doesn't really work. You can say until Shiloh comes, and the problem here is that The noun Shiloh is feminine and the verb is masculine, although that doesn't have to be a problem. I don't think that is a problem. Then another thing you can do is go to the Septuagint, which reads, until he comes to what belongs to him, until he comes to what is his. That presupposes changing Shiloh to Shiloh, which again is written quite differently in Hebrew. In other words, Shiloh looks like this, S-H-L-H. Well, this has two L's, Shiloh. And that's a very obvious difference. They wouldn't make that mistake. But apparently the Septuagint translators did not know what to do with this, and so they made this guess until he comes to what belongs to him. 
until tribute is brought to him. Means, again, revitalizing the Hebrew, breaking up some of the words, putting them back together different ways. Well, I don't think we need to do any of that. I think we can just leave it the way it is. Until Shiloh comes, alluding to Judah's third son, Shelah, and I think I pretty much said all of this. Shelah should have married the Gentile Tamar. Old Judah gave away his staff and took Tamar. New Judah will keep his staff until Shelah is ready, until Shiloh comes. So Shelah may marry Tamar. Shalomo is a form of the same word as Shiloh and Shelah. Solomon marries a Gentile. Obedience of the Gentiles is said to take place at this time. Hiram comes and brings tribute. The queen of Sheba comes. The obedience of nations to the faith. And of course, if this is referring to Solomon, which I think it is, then the greater fulfillment is with Jesus, and the obedience of the nations is his. So I think that is a way that does full justice to the context and also enables us to keep the translation exactly the way it always has been. Well, then we can wrap this up. I mentioned earlier there are five references to wine in verses 11 and 12, and wine is kingly imagery. The first thing that's talked about is the donkey and the colt, not a horse colt, but a donkey colt. If you tie them up to a vine, they're going to probably eat the grapes and eat the leaves and eat the vine. So why would you do that? Well, you might do it because you trust these donkeys so much that you know that you can trust them and they won't do it. And maybe that's part of the thought. The other thought probably is you've got so many grapevines, it doesn't matter. We're so rich and so prosperous, and that really seems to be the overall idea here. We've got so much wine, we can wash our clothes in it. We've got so many grapes, grapevines, that we can just let the donkeys eat all they want. Even the animals get to have all the wine they want because there's so much of it. So, tremendous prosperity, which again, David didn't have this kind of prosperity. Solomon did. Solomon, they paved the streets with silver in Solomon's day. There was so much gold and silver. Remember, silver was accounted as nothing in Solomon's day. Because there was so much of it that only gold worked for money. You used silver to keep the curtains hanging straight in your house, just little pieces of silver hanging on to them. You could use silver for anything because silver was so common. That's the imagery used when Solomon's reign is described. That's how rich they were in here. So much wine that you can do anything you want with it. But as I mentioned, donkey, air is the same. is a play on the name Ur, which really is the same word. Cult of a she-ass. She-ass sounds very much like the name Onan. It's not the same word, but considering that we've already had Sheila and Ur alluded to here, that seeing this as a play on the name is not a problem. The cult of a she-ass, she-ass sounds very much like Onan. And again, if you want to allegorize this, and I don't think it's wrong to at all, I think Jacob is picking up on past events and then making future prophecies. They ate up Judah, so to speak, destroying what should have been his, having sons and grandsons, and they wrecked his house. And he was sinful, but the sons were even more sinful. God didn't kill Judah, but he did kill Ur and Onan. But now this is turned around. The king will be so rich that his sons can eat up all they want. And again, if this refers to sons, and I think it does, if Ur and Onan are behind it, then these are the sons, the sons of the king. And they're tied to the wine plant because they're kingly. And then we have this interesting imagery here. He washes his raiment in wine, his mantle in the blood of grapes. In the kingdom, wine is so plentiful that people will wash in it. Certainly is one idea. And as I mentioned earlier, wine 
points to the positive side of the king's blessing, and blood hints at the negative side of the king's wrath. But more than this, just consider the king is symbolized by wine, the king drinks wine, and the king gives wine. It's what Jesus does, he does today. He gives us his blood as wine. What would happen if you washed your underwear in wine, soak it in wine for a while, and then hung it out to dry? Because it wouldn't be white anymore. But when you wore it, you would smell like wine. And then you wash your outer clothes in it too. So all your clothes would get a purplish tinge. They'd all smell like wine. Now you'd be the ultimate wine of It wouldn't just be wine on your breath. Your clothes would just be the odor of wine everywhere you went. Well, that's the picture here. That's implied here. We're not supposed to just read this over and then zip on to the next verse. Think about what it means. What would it mean to have all of your clothes permeated with wine? Of course, you wouldn't put them on wet. You'd dry them out, but they'd still smell. And as you got warm and sweated a little bit, they'd smell even more. It'd be a walking grape, a walking bottle of wine. This is a picture of what a king is like. Wine is for rest and for joy, and you're full of it. So full of it that your clothes are permeated with it. You sweat wine, and everywhere you go, you smell like wine, and you just it's going to everybody. Everybody gets to have it. So this is a pretty extreme picture of the blessing of the king. So much that it just permeates everything. And then finally, there's a picture of his person. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. And then you read that and you say, so what? He's black Irish, he's got purple eyes, like Elizabeth Taylor. And then his teeth are white because he's had them treated and all the stains are gone. No, that's obviously not what it means. And what's the point here of saying his eyes are dark and his teeth are white? This has to be taken symbolically. It's a symbolic prophecy, and so what does it mean? Well, my guess is that his eyes being like wine means that his judgments are kingly. Eyes are used in judgment. Remember, that's right in the very beginning of the Bible. God saw what he had made, and it was good. God saw what he had made, and it was good. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Seeing is judging. And his judgments are kingly. They're wine judgments. And he judges as king. And then his teeth are like milk. I would say the words from his mouth are pure. Whiter than milk. Purity is symbolized by whiteness in the Bible. And the words that come from his mouth as king are pure. And I've got down here, I think, since this is a picture of the messianic king who has all this fullness of wine and blessing and whose judgments are right, and whose words are true. This mixing, putting wine and milk together, only happens a couple of times in the Bible, and it's rather interesting, a passage that we're familiar with, but it adds a little bit of light to it in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Well, you know, we would say, buying wine and milk and getting all this stuff means the blessings of the kingdom. But this would seem to allude back to Genesis 49. When you buy wine and milk without cost, and like I say, putting wine and milk together is rare in the Bible. There's only one other place besides that. I would say it implies the Messiah. It's this person here that you want. And ultimately that's true. Salvation doesn't come from buying principles of grace. 
or ideas. Salvation comes when you buy free of charge Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the person who's being pictured here. He's the king. So I think this is background for that prophecy, and I wanted to call that to your attention. Let's just remind you of the overall flow of it. Your brothers will praise you. Your hand is on the neck of your enemies. Your sons will bow down to you. And you're the new Joseph now. You'll be over your brothers. You grow up like a lion cub, a warrior lion, and then you sit down like a king of beasts. And that's going to be David. And then he starts talking about David's son. The scepter is not going to depart from Judah from David. What comes from between his legs, his sons, the staff of command will belong to them. And the Gentiles will come when Shiloh comes, when Solomon comes, and ultimately when Jesus comes. And then he promises how wealthy this Solomonic kingdom is going to be. It's going to be permeated with wine, and this Solomonic king is going to be so wise that everything that comes out of his mouth is pure, and every judgment he makes with his eyes is full of God's wine. And, of course, that was true of Solomon until he himself fell away, pointing us to the fact that only Jesus Christ is the full, complete fulfillment of this prophecy. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.